Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Common Sense Halakha with Revelisha Angelovitz. PhD, Yadin Yadin, henceforth, Revelisha. Revelisha, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, Uri. Uh, my name is indeed Alicia. I teach at Yeshivat Malek the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, and a personal smicha and dayanud program, Chukim Chachamim. In short, I've been teaching and writing about halacha for over 20 years. And you're certainly known for a unique take on halacha. That is, despite your yora yora yadin yadin from Yeshiva University, you're very opposed to what brisker has become and to abstract formalism in general. And what exactly that means is why we're doing this today, so let's get started. Since Pesach is coming up, let's start by talking about kitniot. Okay, sure. First, tell me, what's your working definition of kitniot? The high school definition I can give is that it's a minhag ashkenaz, a custom of European Jews dating from the Dark Ages, give or take, to avoid eating certain grain-like foods, legumes and the like, on Pesach, regardless of their leavened status, due to their similarity to chametz. However, it's not the custom of Sephardi Jews, or otherwise traditional conservative with a capital C Jews living in the United States. Uh, in fact, even some Ashkenazim in Israel, modern Orthodox Ashkenazim, resent it and famously call it a, uh, a minhag shtut, a nonsense minhag. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Yerucham of Provence did indeed think that forbidding kidneyot was a minhag shtut. Others, however, including rabbinic sages of Provence itself, Rishonim of Provence, did think that this was a good minhag. So as people who learn Torah for the sake of expanding our insights and how to live life, we'll explain both perspectives. But first, we will examine ourselves, our own flawed way of thinking about ancient laws and traditions. In general, both the modern defense of and the modern distaste for the customer of forbidden kidneyot is based on a misunderstanding of how to read sources. We read the sources of the past, Makorot, as if they express themselves in logical language. We read sources with a logical lens, and then discover that the sources appear to reach illogical conclusions. Then those of us who consider ourselves enlightened tend to either repeat Rabbeinu Rucham's position that the custom to forbid kidneyot is nonsense, or even assert pseudo-sophisticatedly that the custom was based on misunderstandings of botany or even on an alleged karai practice. However, there's another way to read the sources, a better way. Instead of testing the sources for logical rigor, let's examine the sources to simply discover what each author was trying to communicate. In other words, what did an author actually mean? And rather than assume that we can know what they meant, by simply reading their words, we will use context to determine what each author of a past source of our Makarot actually meant by what they said. Just to be clear, Alicia, given that this is the thesis statement of the podcast, you're trying to say that we should be looking beyond just the words of these rabbis themselves and looking at a further context behind them. Good. To be more precise, because this is important, we should keep the context in mind in order to understand what each person's words actually meant. Okay, I've always been taught that words are words. So I could use an example of what you're talking about. Okay, let's take an example from American culture. Imagine you're writing a book trying to cover every possible interaction an American might have and what the proper etiquette would be in that scenario. Sounds terrifyingly insurmountable, but let's run with it. <laughs> okay, so you're on the beach, and there's this child that's cranky, clearly overheating, sitting in the sun, no hat, starting to burn, whatever. It doesn't matter. The kid looks hot. I don't think you're allowed to say that. The kid <laughs> looks overheated, okay? Better. If you were <laughs> writing this etiquette book, you'd probably say you should give the kid a bottle of water. Sounds good to me. Now, let's say I'm at the beach, and I brought with me my handy-dandy copy of Emily Postmodern's American Etiquette. And it says to give this kid next to me a bottle of water. So I reach into my cooler. Okay, hold on, stop. How did I know to reach into my cooler? 
What do you mean? It, it's obvious. Obviously, the rule didn't mean for you to grab some, some seawater. The kit is hot, needs to cool down, so the refreshingly cool and least salty liquid should be found. Bingo. Due to context, we know seawater isn't the right liquid to give the kit. Even though we know Emily Postmodern's book didn't specify water with limited amounts of salt, bacteria, lead, etc. Now let's continue. If I open my cooler and I find that I'm out of water, and all I have is beer and chocolate milk, but I notice an unopened bottle of water that's been sitting in the sun for a few hours, what should I give the kid? Well, I think that depends on how much you like the kid's parents, but probably the chocolate milk. <laughs> but the rule said to give the kid water. Okay, but obviously the intention was to cool the kid down, and the beer is inappropriate for a kid, so obviously you should give the kid a nice cold chocolate milk. Good. Although you're giving the kid a liquid which doesn't match the word, you still understand you're fulfilling the requirement. Now let's apply that to Midrash Halakha. Imagine if the Torah said the following. Okay. If you come across a child burdened by the sun, stop and give them water. And then the Midrash comes along and says, okay. You might think it says give him water, therefore don't give him cold chocolate milk. Therefore it says, under the heat, give him. Most people would read this as a rabbi's changing the meaning of the word tachat from under to instead. As if to say, instead of the heat, give him, and then meaning to replace the heat, give him cold, like a cold drink, cold chocolate milk. They might continue and ask, why are the rabbis making up halacha? The Torah clearly says to give water. Why are the rabbis ignoring the full sentence and making up a new law? Clearly, you can only fulfill your chiyuv with water for a child who is burned in by the heat. The pasuk was, uh, When you see a child under the heat, suffering under the heat, Give him water, not give him water instead of heat. However, based on our discussion, we now understand that including chocolate milk would be an accurate reading of the pasuk. It wouldn't be a literal reading of the words, it would be a reading of the intent, to cool the child who is hot. The intent now would be applied in a differently constrained situation, and therefore instead of water, it would be chocolate milk. Okay, I, I see the concept. A different person would be inclined to say we can't know the intent, but what does this have to do with Kityot? If we read sources this way, that is, take into account actual background conditions of each of the earlier sources, Makarot, we find that modern scholarship misreads the sources on Kinyot. It fails to turn to culinary historical context so as to understand why people can find eating Kinyot a negative experience, one that should be forbidden in those people's opinion. It fails to turn to culinary context to understand why other people would find eating kidney oat an acceptable experience, despite the fact that the experience of eating kidney oat contains a negative touch. We, in contrast, will turn to the context of food and eating so, so as to understand what the different medieval authors we've shown him, and even Talmudic sages, actually meant. Moreover, we will discover that the considerations underlying both the minag and the opposition to the minag are already found in the Torah's Isur on eating chametz and the chiyuv to eat matzah on Pesach. Okay? So you're saying there's some sort of cold drink justification hidden within these two mitzvot? Yes. Hidden to our modern eyes that we text and imagine the traditional sages structure their lives around mere concepts and abstract logical argumentation. I'm going to interrupt you for a moment, Revelisha, to let our listeners know that the sources we're about to cite will be available in a source sheet linked in the description of this podcast if you want to follow along at home. Okay. Let's look at our first source, Shmot, Kafkimel, Yudala to Yudzayin. It's a list of the pilgrimage regal holidays that are done right after the spring, late spring, and summer harvests. Okay, I'm going to translate as I go. 
שלוש רגלים תחוג לי בשנה. Three regular instances you should celebrate for me, me being Hashem, in the year, meaning every year. Et Chag HaMatzot Tishmor, the holiday of Matzot, of unleavened flatbreads, you should observe. Shivat Yamim Tocha Matzot Kasher Tziviticha Lemoed Chodesh HaAviv, Kivo Yatzata Mimitzrayim. For seven days, eat matzot like, like, like I commanded you on the time of the month of the springtime, for that is when you exited Egypt. Wait, 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 good. Let's be a little more clear. Aviv means new barley. So this holiday celebrates the first grain after the winter. So we should read it as, eat matzot like I commanded you on the time of the month of the new barley, which is approximately the beginning of the springtime, for that is when you exited Egypt. Good. Velo Yerup and you shouldn't see my face or show it before me empty-handed. Vichaga Katsir and the Harvest Festival. Harvest of what? I'm going to guess wheat if Pesach is barley. Good. Bikurei Ma'asecha Asher the first fruits of your labors that you planted in the field. Vichaga Asif, and the holiday of the gathering of the fruit. Vitzeta Shanab Aspecha Ma'asecha Minasadeh, the end of the year in your gathering of, in the gathering, in your gathering of your labor from the field. Shalosh Pamim Ashanah Yireh Kol Zuchorcha El Adon Hashem. Three times a year, all of your mail should be seen in front of Hashem the Master. Okay, so let's unpack that. Why does it say celebrate for me or to me? Well, having barley, wheat, and fruit harvest holidays are not unique to the Torah. They're celebrated by everybody who grows things. So if I put my heresy hat on, I would hazard a hunch that these harvest holidays are for Hagibor Vahanorah. And specifically not celebrations of some other god. Happy with yourself? Hugely. Where else in this text could you see a proof for your reading? Well, it comes together at the end to say that all of this is for Ha'adon Hashem and not someone else. Maybe you could make a case that this is, you know, wordplay with Ba'al as master versus Adon as master. Good, good. So these Chagim are reworkings of existent festivals with redirected energies toward God, Hashem. Ibn Ezra even says on the first pasuk we brought that the pasuk says Tachogli in order to remind us that there are known pagan harvest holidays and these Chagim, however, in the Torah are for Hashem. So, let's pretend you're a poor person. It's not difficult. We don't have any advertisers yet. Let's pretend you're a poor person when you get to the end of the winter. How much of your stock of wheat, no, barley actually, because barley is cheaper, how much do you have left? Probably exactly as much, or more likely as little as I need to survive to the spring harvest. I'm, I imagine that the poor, like the poor of pretty much every year before 1800, uh, were living hand to mouth and only had enough capital on hand at the end of the wheat harvest in the fall to purchase the absolute minimum they needed to get through the winter. If they even had that much before, they'd have to rely on some other lower than barley quality food. Right. They may barely have survived. And they may have been eating the grass and plants that grew in the winter rather than grain if they ran out of grain. Meaning, animal feed quality plants that you have to cook down and chop up to make somewhat edible may have been their food by the end of the winter. Now, would a poor person therefore be happy and celebrate when the new barley is ready for harvest? Obviously. Yes. But... Between wheat and barley, which is a preferable grain? Oh, easily barley. What? No, what? Why? Because <laughs> barley makes whiskey. Okay. And if we're talking about an ancient peasant who wants to make bread for sustenance, and not someone who can waste grain on alcohol? I, I know the answer is wheat, but I don't know why the answer is wheat. Classic wheat is more easily digested and has more protein than barley. I'll keep that in mind. That, that does seem to track with a sort of idealized market, that the better product is worth more money. Okay, so who is going to eat the new, lower-quality barley, the rich or the poor? Obviously the poor, who won't have wheat left over from Sukkot. Good. So when barley is used to make bread, it classically makes a thick, unleavened bread, matzah. To clarify, I'm emphasizing classically because I know that you can walk into Trader Joe's and buy a barley spelt bread and it looks like the normal loaf. Okay, so knowing that, who would not be eating barley flatbread at the end of the winter, and thus would be the subject of the commandment to eat matzah? The rich person, because wheat bread tastes better and they have the capacity to purchase it, 
and the poor doesn't have any leavened wheat products by the time Pesach rolls around. Good. So the Torah commands the rich to celebrate alongside the poor by commanding them to eat flatbread, barley flatbread like the poor. And the Torah reminds the rich that this is what we ate when we all left Mitzrayim. The connection between the two is both that just as we were all slaves in Egypt, the rich should be willing to eat bread like the poor. Possibly also that just as we are excited to be free from slavery, we are excited to be free from the hunger of the winter. So you're saying the rich eat barley bread too, even though they have the better wheat? Fascinatingly, at first glance, yes. That would seem to be the pshat. That would seem to be the meaning of the pasuk. The rich are eating flatbread, and classically that means barley bread. On the other hand, we know from Bayit Shini, Second Temple, that the new barley was not yet eaten by the day of the Korban Pesach. Therefore, one was expected to eat whatever leftover grain one had, barley or even wheat. In fact, the sources we have from Chazal state that one is allowed to make matzah from wheat, as long as it resembles the spring barley first flatbread. But, as we will discuss, those individuals with wheat who were allowed to eat wheat flatbread were also expected to share it with the destitute, i.e. with those who might not have had any grain at all left. Therefore, this harlot holiday is the barley holiday, whose opening ceremony is having the rich share their grain stores with the poor as they celebrate new barley grain by eating the stored grains as flatbread. In fact, the Torah forbids keeping even the sa'or, the sourdough starter, as we refer to it today, which is the classic ingredient to make normal bread in ancient times, which means that people had to celebrate the flatbread holiday and were allowed to eat wheat only when it could not be turned into normal bread. As it says in Shemot Yud, Gimel, Eat flatbread and make sure to have no way to make regular bread. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that we've looked at our first source, let's look at our second source. Tvarim, Tet Zion, Pasuk Bet, and Gimel. V'zavachta Pesach la'ashem lukecha, son uvakar. And you shall slaughter a Pesach to Hashem, sheep and cattle. In the place that Hashem will choose to dwell. Don't eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it, the Korban Pesach. Matzot flatbread, that is the bread of affliction inui or impoverished ani. For in haste did you make your exit from the land of Egypt. For this reason, you will eat the matzot flatbread to remember the day you left Egypt. Every day of your life, and right. the nights too. Okay. Yes, the Torah is deliberately connecting the suffering Inui and the poverty Ani of B'nai Israel in Egypt to eating bread that poor people eat. Flatbread, that is baked quickly, and is itself an affliction to eat when compared to wheat. I assume we're not talking about the modern cracker matzah, but something more like what we now call temani matzah, which I had once in middle school and can best compare it to a crossbreed of an old shoe that was left in the sun with a box of Twizzlers that was hiding in your third grade teacher's closet for a few years and a barley focaccia. Uh, the bread of affliction. Yeah. Okay, so we establish that the purpose of this mitzvah is to enact a semi-gastro-egalitarian state between the wealthy and the poor on this holiday. On the one hand, the poor are happy that they have real grain, i.e. barley. On the other hand, the rich have to lower themselves to eat flatbread. And now we can explain that matzah can be made out of wheat. If we just read the pshat, the poor celebrate with barley flatbread, and the rich avoid making the poor too jealous with wheat flatbread, and they also eat barley flatbread. However, if we really want the poor to celebrate their barley without being just the rich having wheat, which the poor won't have at least until the wheat season, right, because then the supply will be high and the price goes down around Shavuot, the rich should share their leftover grain, wheat, barley, whatever they have, with the poor, before the poor shift to eating barley exclusively. It's not enough that the rich eat barley flatbread. They should share their quality grain with the poor. 
And therefore, halachic tradition and everything we know from Bayachini, Second Temple sources, forbids eating the new barley chadash until after at least the first day of Pesach. That meant that in order for the poor to celebrate the Korban Pesach, the rich had to share their leftover grain with the poor. Mm-hmm. Even though meat is expensive in the Middle East, as we see from conic men not sharing the korban meat with their wives or slaves, on the eve of Pesach, those with meat were expected to share it with their slaves, but not only with their slaves, but also with other people who would otherwise only get bread or some other minimal calorie protein food, such as a non-citizen ger, the poor, for whom the rich are not regularly responsible. So you have to share a korban Pesach meat with the slaves and even other poor. And the Torah commands this through its description of poor persons eating a korban Pesach, which by definition includes the cost of an actual animal. The poor people can only eat it if the rich share. The Torah describes this in a pasuk about a non-citizen, which as I've discussed in an article we'll link in the description, means a poor non-land-owning person, whether a foreigner or even a local peasant. Eger. The pasuk is in Shmot Yud Bet, and when a ger will live among you and will make a Pesach to Hashem, okay, so the Pesach says that a ger has to make a Pesach. And the Pesach before it says that even a slave, somebody who would normally only receive minimum calories, participates. The Eved, the slave, will eat of it, the Korban Pesach. In short, those who have are sharing with those who don't have both the korban pesach and the bread that goes along with it, i.e. flatbread, matzah. Made of what? Made of the grain left over from last year, presumably wheat, whatever the rich person has left over. Wow. Okay. This is a completely different structure from what I had been imagining. Let's just make sure I understand. You're suggesting that by the time this thing we're calling Pesach rolls around, the impoverished among us, which are at best what we would call abject poverty today, given the meteoric rise in wealth in the past 200 years, are living on limited quantities of poor quality food. And by poor quality, we mean of low nutritional value. So they would be happy to have some barley and would just go bananas for some wheat. Assuming they can get their mitts on some barley, though, they're left making a flatbread. And so in order not to make the poor feel bad, the rich use even their wheat to make a flatbread. Except that practice isn't necessarily plausible for the poor, so the rich share of their grain stores, wheat or barley, with everyone as a way of celebrating the newly grown barley after the long cold winter. Nice. Now, this Torah background will allow us to turn to the first discussion of Kitniot in rabbinic sources. Welcome back. Before the break, we looked at biblical Torah sources, and we saw that Pesach is a holiday of celebrating the new grain that the poor can eat instead of trying to survive on cooking barely edible animal feed plants, and we saw it's a holiday in which the rich have to eat their bread similarly to the poor, and even share their grain with the poor. Yes. Now let's move forward, chronologically, to a time when it was difficult to save enough grain from before the spring, what we would call Yashan, old grain, to feed the poor of Israel on Pesach night. Why was it less grain? Because aside from Roman taxation, which increased after the Churban destruction of the temple, the failure of the Great Revolt, the amount of land in Jewish hands also dropped, so there was less grain. Okay. Mishnah Pesachim, Bet Hay. Elu dvarim she'adam yotzei v'hen yedei chovato Pesach. These are the things from which you can make matzah to fulfill your obligation on Pesach to eat matzah. Bechitim, with wheat, Besorim with barley, bikusmin with spelt, uvishifon with rye, uvishibodachual, and with oats. Okay, something I don't understand here is, from what else are you going to make it? They didn't have potato flour back then. Right, they didn't have potatoes from South America yet. But the next source will answer your question. We're about to look at a text from a source called the Mechilta. Since some of our listeners may not have heard of it or may not understand what it is, we're going to define it here. Most of us are probably familiar with the idea of Midrash, a Tanaitic source that functions as commentary to Tanakh, and we probably think of it as stories. Fan fictions, added details about stories and characters in Tanakh. 
Yeah, yeah. You mean Midrash Haggadah, and that's not how it works, and we can talk about that in another episode. There is also Midrash Halakha. Midrash Halakha are Tanaitic sources discussing Halakha while reading Psukim in Tanakh. Mechilta is an example of a Midrash Halakha. Okay. Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, Bo. This is Midrash Halakha on the Psukim we quoted before. Shivat Yamim Matzot Seven days you shall eat Matzot. That's the Dibra Matchil. Shomeani, kol matzot b'mashma. I hear any flatbread. Talmud lomar, lo tochalalav chametz. That's why it says, don't eat it, the Korban Pesach, with chametz. That is, leavened bread, that is, quality leavened bread. Lo amarti eladavar haba lide matzah uchametz. I only spoke of that which can be both flatbread, i.e. poor bread, and leavened bread, i.e. quality bread. Ve'ezeze. And what are those potential grains that can become leavened? Elu chameshet haminim ve'eluhem. They are the five grains, and these are they: hachitim v'hasorim v'hakusmin v'shibolat shual v'shifon. The wheat, the barley, the spelt, the oats, and rye. Yatzu haorez. It doesn't include rice v'hadochen or millet v'pargin or poppy v'hakitniot or legumes v'sumsumin or sesame. She'ein ba'ein lidei chametzu matzah ela lidei sirachon that they can't become leavened, which we're defining as something you'd actually want to eat, versus matzah, poor flatbread, which you'd tolerate eating. Rather, they become merely odiferous, which although it is risen, you'd prefer to avoid. Notice that sirachon stands in contrast to chametz. That is, chametz is enjoyable quality food, and the list of non-chametz foods is smelly. So according to Mechilta, the five grains can leaven, but these other flowers, even though they can also rise, will not produce anything other than a smelly product. By the way, this is also why in Mishnah Chala, Perik Aleph, Mishnah Adalf and Bet, a person who vows not to eat grain is allowed to eat these second-tier foodstuffs. And these foodstuffs are not chayiv and truma and masrot. So, given what we've laid out, why is it important that matzah come from the five grains? Well, I guess you can't expect people to celebrate with a bread that nobody wants to eat. All the more so, having the abject poor eat this type of bread will not match the fact that the Torah went out of its way to command the rich to eat flatbread like the poor, and that the poor receive bread, even though it is flatbread, from the rich. This holiday is meant to be in celebration of both the new grain and our redemption from servitude in Mitzrayim, not suffering through another disappointing meal. Good. Now let's look at an opposing tentative position. Psachim, Lamed Hei, Amud Keep in mind that Rabbi Yochum ben Nuri was extremely poor. And how do we know that? Because Yerushalmi Peah says he would support himself with leket, the gleanings for the poor. Okay. Tashma, come and listen. Ditanya, it was taught in a Tanaitic source. Amar Rabbi Yochum ben Nuri, Rabbi Yochum ben Nuri said, Orez min deganhu. Rice is a species of grain, meaning it should be included in our list of five, or now six, grains. And if you leaven it, you will be chayav karit. And you can use it to fulfill your matzah obligation on Pesach. So let's lay out this machloket. Rabbi Yochum Menuri and the Chachamim. Rabbi Yochum Menuri recognizes bread made from rice as, regretfully, normal bread. And now the question for Pesach was, do he and others living in abject poverty have to depend on quality grain, which was now more difficult to acquire after the destruction, or can they use their poor grain for matzah? Rabbi Minuri focused on the celebration of being free, of being people who were once slaves and are now celebrating being free people. Were he to agree that this abject poor should eat only of the five grains, he and others would be forced to accept personal charity, and, would be, and they would be indebted socially and or politically. In Roman terms, it was known as the relationship between patron and client. The Chachamim, the majority, on the other hand, focused on the obligation of those with money to share with the poor, and to have the poor receive quality bread, flatbread, but quality flatbread. In fact, they so wanted the poor to be given grain that they obligated a community whose rich had failed to donate sufficient funds for the Seder, to draw on even the soup kitchen funds, the poor box funds, the tamchuit funds. And 
That would be in Mishnah Pesachim 10.1. Afilu ani shebi Yisrael, lo yochal ad sheyesev, velo yifchatu lo merabakosot shayayin, vafilu minatam chui. Even a poor Jew must recline with others in order to eat, and they, the community at large, or the persons in charge of the charity funds, have to give the poor what they need for a proper seder, meaning wine, and obviously the meal, normal grain bread made from one of those five grains we just talked about, to go with it. Even if it has to come from the basic needs fund, the soup kitchens, tamkoi fund, the poor must be given wine, and all the more so, bread-worthy grain. Okay, so this makes it clear that sometimes the community pool of donors didn't have the funds or the desire to provide the poor with that food. The Chachamim, therefore, demanded that the community Tamchui officials draw on even basic need funds to provide for the Pesach extravagance, and then fundraise afterwards to replace the missing funds. As the Gemara Pesachim, Kufi Bedamun Aleph 112a nicely elaborates, Tafilu mina Tamchui, Pshita, Lo, the Mishnah needed to make the point that the poor should draw on Tamkoi funds, even for matzah and wine, because there are poor people, such as Rabbi Yochamanuri, who would behave as Rabbi Kiva had taught. Rabbi Kiva taught that a poor person should eat humbly, even on Shabbat, rather than ask for funds. That is, a poor person should experience the renewed dignity that a day of rest Shabbat provides rather than sacrifice the benefits of rest for the mere sake of quality food. And the Mishnah points out, in contrast here in Pesachim, that the way to celebrate having survived the winter and having new grain is by eating actual real grain. Rabbi Yochum and Nuri, on the other hand, asserted that the poor did not need this grain. They did not need to receive quality food to feel equal, rather than to be dependent on the rich who are not always supplying sufficient funds, food, and possibly even deplete the community's poor person funds for the sake of one night, the poor would do just fine with rice. They would celebrate their freedom and equality better by having their own matzah in contrast to their own normal chametz. Rice. Chametz, rice, matzah. Wait. Based on this, chachamim allow you to eat rice both as matzah and leavened on Pesach, just not to fulfill the Seder night matzah obligation. And even Rabbi Yochanan Menuri allows you to eat rice as matzah on Pesach, just not as chametz. So, why does the Ashkenazi Kitneo custom forbid any consumption of rice, not just consumption of leavened rice? Ah, okay, so this is where we need to look at the medieval sources that we've shown him and examine the custom of avoiding all five grain substitutes. Okay. We're back, and we're going to look at medieval sources that we shown him. Rega, hold on, we're not there yet. Look at the next source. Nobody holds like Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri. As Rambam says, Rambam, Hilchot Chametz Matzah, Perak Hei, Halacha Aleph. En Isur Mishum Chametz Pesach, Ela Chameshet Minei Degan Bilvad. There is no Isur Chametz on Pesach except for the five grains. Vehem Shnei Minei Chitim, Shehen HaChita VeKusemet, Vishlosha Minei Asorim, Shehen HaSeora VeShibolichual VeHashifon. And they are the two kinds of wheat, wheat and spelt, and the three kinds of barley, barley, oats, and rye. Avala Kitniot, Kigon Ors VeDochen VeFulim VeHashim, VeChiyotze VeHen, and bahem mishum chametz. But the kitniot, which is literally translated as legumes, among which rice are not is not included botanically, the Rambam includes in the, his category of kitniot, rice, millet, beans, lentils, and similar things, they are not chametzically prohibited. Ella, afidulash kemach orez v'chiyotzebo berotchin, v'kisahuhu bebegadim ad shenitfach, kimo betzach sheichmitz, Rather, even if you knead rice and the like in hot water and covered it with a cloth until it rose like a dough, this would be mutar on Pesach permitted because it's not a risen product, it's a stinky. Right, continue. 
a man does not fulfill his obligation for eating matzah unless it is made from one of the five grains, as it says, don't eat chametz, eat matzah. Dvarim habaim chimutz, im achlan matzah yitzei bahen Things that can leaven are the foods that can fulfill your obligation. Aval shar dvarim kagon ors v'docham akidiot, en yitzei bahen yidei matzah lefi she'en bahen chametz. But everything else, like rice, millet, or kidney oat, you can't use because they don't rise. So it seems like this only applies on the first night, and then every other night is a bit more free, especially as regards to kidney oat, because they don't machmitz, they don't leaven. Yes. But even according to Rambam, allowing kidney oat on Pesach is a compromise between these ideas that we should all be celebrating the Chag with wheat or barley, and the reality that some of us won't have access to wheat and barley beyond the first night. But on the first night, we demand quality. So where do we get the idea that we can't eat kidney oat at all? Well, 13th century France and Provence. Cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Thank you, groundskeeper Willie. No, the next source is from Rabbeinu Manoach, 13th century Provence. He wrote Sefer Manucha on Rambam's Mishnah Torah. Rabbeinu Manoach, Sefer HaMenucha, Hilchot Chametu Matzah, Perek Hei. Nagu kol haolam, shelo lechol zirodim bepesach. The universal custom, which I'm going to read as his region, the world he knew of, is not to eat seeds slash kernels on Pesach. V'lami staber lomar, sheyehe haminhag, talui b'isur, klal she'ein b'shum kitniot ba'olam shum chimutz. And it wouldn't be reasonable to say that this minhag depends on some isur, chametz, because kidneyot don't become leavened. Ela mipnei she'ein derech lechol kidneyot b'moed. Rather, it is because it is not normal to eat them on a holiday. Why? Sharei katuv v'samachta b'chagecha ve'ein simcha b'achilat tavshil kidneyot. Because it says you should be happy in your festivals, and there is no happiness in eating the, in the eating of kidneyot dishes. And there's no doubt that if you wanted to eat seeds on Pesach and similar things and other types of kidneyot, it would be mutar, it would be permitted, and there is no whisper of an isur at all. Obviously, zeronim doesn't include wheat and barley, even though technically it is the seed of both that we eat. In, in any case, this is... Strong evidence that Indian food hasn't made it to 13th century Provence yet. I guess. Yes. But, but seriously, what is he talking about? Well, Rambam already admitted, continued to teach that kinyot is less lower quality than grains. And we know from historical research now when we turn to Provence that the Jewish community in medieval southern France was relatively wealthy. And so they avoided kidney oat in general because lentil dishes, such as lentil porridges, are distasteful in comparison to wheat porridges and flatbread. It's food that you wouldn't necessarily eat on chag, like a, a, a ramen noodle cup, because it isn't a quality enough dish for Yom Tov. But if you really like ramen noodle cups, nobody is stopping you from e eating it. They just might look at you kind of funny. There you go. Okay, that's the bas basis. Rambam admits that it's poorer quality. Rabbi Manoach says, we generally avoid it, but if you really want to eat it, you can eat it. And now we can move to the next step of those who actually forbid it. So let's look at the next source for Banikin This is from Rabbi Asher ben Meshulam Milunil, which is another 13th century Provencal source. Kuntras likotim misefer haminhagot, amud chamishim v'shesh. And the global menhag, again, I'm reading as the menhag of his region, is not to eat seed slash kernels slash kitniot on Pesach because they are capable of leavening and thusly they are called chimtzi. Okay. Based on medieval commentaries and dictionaries, chimtzi is afuna, which in medieval Hebrew means chickpeas. Okay, but even if chickpea dough can ferment, why is that a problem? Even wheat is permitted as matzah. Good. Why would you avoid chickpea type of bread? 
because despite my love of falafel and hummus, the mere thought of chickpea bread in some health store makes me gag. Right. So then, the forbidding of all chickpea flour, because it both can become chametz and its name sounds like chametz, is a cute wordplay. But based on what we saw earlier, why did people really avoid it? Because it's it's poor people food. It's not as high quality. It's it's inappropriate for a holiday and even more so Pesach. According to Rabbeinu Manoach, because they're yucky and not because they're capable of leavening, but according to Rabbeinu Asher and Meshulam, because they're capable of le- leavening, just not to the point of a quality of a food that you should have at Pesach. An instant ramen noodle is still a noodle, but you wouldn't serve it on Shabbat. Okay. So we understand what Kenyan foods looked like and who ate them in that era. The poor. And that these are not top quality foods that are appropriate for holidays, especially Pesach, and especially not the Seder. That point is made clearly, explicitly, by the Abu Dirham or Abu Darham, better known as Abu Draham, an early mid-14th century Spanish rabbi in his commentary on the Haggadah. Ba'al Sefer Abu Draham, Sefer Seder HaHaggadah, Uperosheha. This is from the Abu Draham's commentary on the Haggadah, as found in the Torah Chaim edition. You might be familiar with their blue micro kedolot chumash. Kol dichvin yetevi yechol. All who are struggling, meaning poor, come and eat. Kilomar, mishu ve'en That is to say, he that is hungry and has nothing to eat should come and eat with us. Ve'kol ditrich yetevi yefsach. And all who need should come and do the Pesach thing. Perush, efshar adam pat orez upatochan The explanation is that it could be that someone has rice bread or millet bread and isn't actually hungry. He has food to eat. But he doesn't have the matzot the flatbreads that could fulfill the mitzvah, or the other Pesach needs, like charoset or maror, or wine enough for the four cups, that's why it says anyone who needs should sit and do the Pesach thing. That is to say, one can only do the Pesach thing with the proper stuff. Vecharkach, yidaber elibam, v'omer lehem, lo tavoshu im atem smuchim al shulchan acherim. And afterwards, the leader of the Seder can speak to them comfortingly and say, don't be embarrassed that you're reliant on someone else's table. For this year, you are here, but next year, you'll be living peacefully in Israel, meaning the messianic age where everyone's needs will be met. This year, we are slaves. We, that is, we and you, are enslaved. Next year, the Mashiach will come, and we'll all be free. Okay, so this lays out that there are people who are starving and have no food, those who are the Dichvin, and there are those who have food, rice and millet, which, as we recall, are in the list of Kitniot, but do not have wheat-worthy food for Pesach, who are the Ditzich. The ritual also says it's just in less clear language. Okay, this is from the same Torah Chaim Haggadah that we found the Abu Duraham in. All who need should come and do the Pesach thing. That if he doesn't have, meaning the proper foods such as wheat, matzah, and charoset, marah, or wine, it's appropriate to take even from the otherwise set aside tzedakah funds, which are intended for basic sustenance like modern soup kitchens, in order to fulfill the mitzvah of the night of Pesach, that is, eat real grains and drink wine. Okay, this is based on the Gemara that we discussed earlier in our Vipsachim on the Mishnah, that everyone should have four cups of wine at the Seder, a samchui, even if they have to take it from the poor box, no matter the financial barrier, everyone should be having a similar Erev Pesach. In short, most Tanaim taught that everybody must eat good quality grain product and have some meat and have some wine on the first night of Pesach. And in those medieval communities in which the number of poor did not overwhelm the community's capacity to support them, there was even a custom of Minak to avoid eating kidneyot for the whole of the holiday, especially emphasized on the early spring holiday when the rich have to help the poor because all the grain in the fields has not yet reached the markets. Okay, I, 
I got the wordplay, Chametz Chemsi. I got the quality. I get that it's not about a misunderstanding of botany, that they're similar. It's about having a quality Pesach experience. And I get that they can produce similar-looking foods. Maybe there's a bit of a Gezerah Shema going on here. For, for our listeners, a Gezerah Shema is directly translated, a maybe decree, meaning something we ban because if you did it, you might find yourself doing something that's very much a sur. So I can see a Gezerah Shema going on here too, that maybe the poor person who's eating some sort of kidney with bread or porridge will mix in some wheat or barley to try and make the dish nicer, and will end up chametzing it because they won't bake it to be unleavened rather than cook it normally. And, and I get that. Good. You understand that poor people might be tempted to eat chametz instead of really bad bean porridge paste. But really, this custom is there even for the pious poor. Anything forbidden as Xeris Shema is always an action that is problematic in and of itself. And we speak about Xera only in order to speak to those who are not managing to see the problem. This is something that we will prove in another episode. So for the present, just keep it in mind. Now, let's do the following. We're going to read, and you're going to explain to me how the smak, 13th century of Yitzchak Murkobay, Pekobayl, Sefer Mitzvot Katan says what you just said about quality and and um, poor people possibly mixing things in, in his own words. Sefer Mitzvot Katan, Mitzvah, Resh Chav Vet. V'ala Kitniot, regarding Kitniot. Kigon foish v'fule v'rish v'adashim v'chiyotze b'hem. Such as foish, if you look in the source, he defines it as a white bean. Fuli, beans, rish, rice, vadashim, and lentils and such. Wait a second, aren't aren't beans a new world food? Fava beans are old world. Black beans and the like are new world. Okay, cool. Many have the custom to not eat them, or rather treat it as forbidden to eat them, on Pesach. Mihu, however... The reason for the custom is not because of the Isur of Chametz itself. For they do not err in a halachic matter that school children know. That is explicit in the Gemara. That only the five grains can reach the state of being leavened. Therefore, it seems appropriate to uphold the minhag and not eat kitnyon on Pesach, not because of chametz itself, because that would be a mistake to say that. Rather, the reason is because of an additional rule, a gzera. Okay. Because kitnyot make a grain food cooked in a pot, i.e. a kidney oat porridge. And the five grains also make a porridge, such as a wheat porridge, daisa, also known as farina. And if we were to permit, permit kidney oat, maybe someone would come to switch out one for the other and permit daisa, since both are porridges. And it behaves like a flower of one of the five grains. As we saw in Talmud in Bava Metziah, the seventh chapter, that refers to kitniot as behaving like a flower. And also there are places that normally make a bread from them, meaning kitniot, like they would make a five-grain bread. Meaning a kitten-yoat bread that looks like a five-grain bread, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. And therefore, those who are not B'nai Torah will come to switch them out. Good. Now, this source seems to be self-contradictory. On the one hand, every child who studied anything knows that kitten are completely different from the five grains in terms of Pesach and Chametz. On the other hand, if somebody is permitted to eat kitten porridge, or even kinyot bread, they might somehow come to eat five-grain porridge. 
So this sounds contradictory. But based on your explanation, translate the smak speaking reasonably. The Isra Kitniot is not about its leving ability or even similarity to chametz per se, but about the function the ingredients served in the cuisine of the time. Kitniot makes lousy, pasty porridge whose taste is best described as present, uh, which isn't food appropriate for Pesach, the same way that a greasy slice of pizza isn't appropriate for lunch on Rosh Hashanah. And obviously everyone can tell the difference between the porridges, even little kids. We're not worried about people confusing the two. We're worried about people who aren't so strict, non Torah, adding some chametz to their bean porridge, some chametz to their bean porridge to make it a bit better. We have the gazera shema on something that's already bad on its own, eating the pasty porridge, greasy slice equivalent on chag, and making it worse by eating chametz, which is an established, definite no-no on pesach. And so, what we're left with when we allow kitniot is either having people eat cruddy kitniot food, or allowing the possibility to mix in some chametz. So just get rid of it entirely, eat your matzah and your meat, if you, and if you can afford it, if you can't afford it, the rich, the rich will cover you. Okay. And I get why that means that all kitniot foods are banned, unlike chametz where I can still eat wheat. Except what about stuff like mustard or honey? Those aren't poor people's staples, they're not staples at all. As far as I know, they, they enhance flavor, like salt, and I wouldn't call salt poor people food. Okay. Good. Good question. So based on how we've explained kidneyot so far, tell me, why might mustard and honey end up in the list? Right. Okay. I'm a medieval poor person, and for some reason, mustard is associated with my food. Okay, why specifically mustard? Why not any other spice? Well, in addition to spices being expensive simply from transport costs, but also pepper is sort of immediately spicy and mustard is more throat spicy than tongue spicy, making it a a less enjoyable and present spicy. Plus, mustard can cause an upset stomach, whereas pepper behaves itself. Okay, I I think I get that. Now, honey... Honey is a a sweetener, which would be used in desserts, which everyone would want to be sweet. So why would honey be the sweetener for the impoverished? Okay, what else is available? Um, Where where is sugarcane native to? It's from Southeast Asia originally, but the Greeks found it as early as the 6th century BCE. Okay, so we'd have sugarcane in the medieval era in Europe, and sugar is just as sweet without the extra honey taste. So I would imagine that there would be more of a demand for it, therefore making it more expensive than honey. The price probably has to do with transport costs too, because bees can live anywhere and sugarcane needs a warm climate. And if you want refined sugar, all the more so, you need to take into account labor costs. And yeah, So putting honey in a food is probably indicative of poor person food. I'm, I'm also thinking of natural honey desserts that I've had that just aren't as good as something with sugar. And and I've seen, you know, Game of Thrones type recipes with honey and they're thick and dense and I mean even something like a honey cake just isn't as good as normal dessert. It's it's rougher. It's just not as good. Am I on the right track here? Yes. Good. Now let's see that the smock forbids mustard and honey for exactly these reasons, even though he uses different words than yours. Let's see this by reading the smock's words contextually. Sefer mitzvah katan, mitzvah reish chaf vet. Vafilu mechardal, mishum dehave mide dimidiganhu. And even from the mustard, you should refrain, because it is made like a grain. Okay, literally that's correct. But when the Bavli and the Yushami use that term to explain Mishnah Nidarim, Perakzayim Mishnah 7-1, they use it to mean a produce that is piled up in a heap, like grain heaps. Oh, so, so mustard is little seeds, and like grain is little seeds, and they're probably stored in little bags, and since they weren't marking which bag was which, they would get confused. Really? Once people open a sack, will they still be confused whether it's mustard or wheat? Okay, now that I think about it, I imagine your nose would notice before your eyes. Okay, so let's go back to your original explanation of why mustard would be forbidden. Why did you forbid mustard? Because it's it's not the best spicy. 
Good. And what do you do with spices and mustard in relation to a piece of fish or meat? You you dip it, you slather, you dash, you rub, you coat, you... And what do you do with flour on a piece of fish or meat? Oh, you, you also coat it. And what do you call mustard coating in French? No parlez-vous français. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a magic box in your pocket. Look it up. Okay, Google Translate, tap, tap, tap. Uh, oh, farine de moutarde. Farine meaning flour or ground up thing. Good. Now look up whether you can find farine de épice. Ground up thing of... Spice. Okay. Nothing when I search in quotes. Okay, I see what's going on. We've got this ground up mustard seed that gets coated on our meat, just like we have ground up wheat seed that gets coated on our meat. And the only ground up foods that get put on meat slash fish that the French call farine are grain and mustard. And the smock is against using either of the flours, whether chametz or mustard. Even though it's about the taste, he's using the similar language of grain. I get it. Wordplay. I'm a fan. Good. Okay. Now let's jump a few lines to honey. Remind us, why would you oppose eating honey on Pesach? Because I could use sugar, a sweeter substance. Good. Now let's see whether we can do the same thing again. Explain the smock's words commonsensically. And concerning honey, it appears to be forbidden on Pesach. Regardless of whether it's visibly present, like a normal squeeze bottle honey, or a mere ingredient. And it doesn't matter if it comes in the form of this drink called maiche, in which flour or fine flour is mixed. Maiche, uh, that, that's just got to be a different way of saying mead. Right. The word for which has been around since at least the Celts. Though, technically, once you mix in flour, it's called bracket. <laughs> what is it with you in details about alcohol? I went to college. I'm a Okay. Umihu. However... The honey that is removed directly from the hive, that we know has no mixture in it, I might think to permit. Nevertheless, it is correct to forbid it, as you might come to replace it, meaning eat or drink honey with chametz. Okay. If we read merely the words without context, what would be strange here? A lot of things. What's the difference between visible and ingredient? He's saying as if one's worse. And isn't visible honey, as it were, the kind that I would drizzle on a piece of toast, close to honey from the hive, and certainly not having anything mixed in? And and also the thing at the end with the no mead, because it might have flour mixed in, but even if you know it won't have anything mixed in because it's straight out of the hive, it's still not allowed. What, what kind of crazy is that? If you're trying to read this as related to chametz in any way, it, it, just, it just doesn't work. Good. That means... We have to actually hear what the smak meant versus merely just read his words. And given that you explained why one would avoid honey on Pesach, we can now do that. Let's translate again, but add in words that connect these words to the concept of honey being a poor quality sugar substitute. One, energy providing and sweet yet thick stick, sticky honey in contrast to sugar is forbidden, whether eaten straight or even as an, an ingredient, that is, an ingredient being used instead of the nicer sugar. Two, even if it's not being made into the peasant's chametzi mead drink, it's still aser. Three, and although you could get raw fresh from the hive honey, and that should be permitted because you know there's nothing in it, no chametz in it, and you're not using it as a poor quality food ingredient, still, it should be forbidden because once you let them eat a spoonful of random honey, then you're going to turn that into a norm of people using honey as their ingredients instead of sugar. Now I want you to reread that entirety of the smock with this understanding. Okay. And regarding honey, it appears that it should be forbidden on Pesach because it would detract from the generally festive nature of the holiday. Obviously, it doesn't matter how it's used, as a dressing or an ingredient, because you could have used a dusting of sugar in either case. And don't think 
that you're going to drink mead as your night drink on this Chag. No, 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 wine. The fish of Agilin, the Revbo Kemachosolet. And besides which, people like to mix in different grinds of flour, and, and you know, that, that does make it nicer, but it, it would make it chametz. So, come on, yayin. Umihu. And I know you're thinking, wait, if chametz is the issue, what if I just you know, take it right out of the hive? Can't be any issues there. Nope, banned. Don't want to create a norm of people eating honey at all. Give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Get some sugar, it's a holiday. Sleep some more, it's a holiday, have fun! Okay, good. <laughs> Maybe a little too irreverent, but the cloacal nature is accurate. Okay, this is incredibly reassuring that the rulings written by superannuated rabbis aren't nonsense that I'm unfortunately stuck with, but actually representative of deep emotional intelligence and awareness of the needs of all corners of our society. But I've been taught that words are words. Why didn't they just write what they meant instead of making us play this Da Vinci Code game a thousand years later? Say what you mean! Well, actually, they are saying what they mean. We just aren't speaking their language. To borrow from George Bernard Shaw, America and Britain are two nations separated by a common language. We think we are speaking the same language, but we have different colloquialisms. Imagine someone seven, someone 700 years in the future trying to read a sign that says smoking kills. And all they know of the verb smoking is that it means to make smoke through fire, either for meat preparation or to drive bees out of a beehive or such. They will look at the sign that says smoke and kills, and they will think it's stating that meat preparation through smoke, or smoke inhalation while taking care of bees, kills. If you tell them that what is meant by smoking is what we call smoking a cigarette, they will be perplexed. And they will ask you, why are you calling that smoking? You don't put the cigarette in your mouth for the sake of making smoke. But we, contemporaries of the colloquial phrase, understand exactly what it means. Similarly, if I tell you to stop at a red light, do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. When, when you're driving, stop at a red light. You mean a traffic light? Yes, I mean a traffic light. Traffic control signals in the language of traffic codes. Great. But why did you not think that I meant stop at any lit red bulb? Because that, that's what it means. It doesn't mean stop when you see a blinking red light in a radio tower in the distance. Although the literal translation of the words or the semantic meaning of the words, does mean any red light. You somehow knew to understand that phrase differently. So how did you know that? Oh, I, I, I see what you're saying. Because in the culture in which I grew up in the 21st century, when I went, I went to driving school and heard the line stop at a red light over and over and always in the context of driving and always talking about that multicolored thing at an intersection, yada, yada, yada. Stop at a red light means in the context when operating a motor vehicle on a public roadway, upon seeing the steady red indication activated in a traffic control signal found in an intersection of two or more public roadways to bring the motor vehicle to a full and complete stop before that intersection as demarcated by the white lines painted on the road perpendicularly to the direction of the road near the intersection. Stop at a red light. <laughs> Great. Now apply your insight to the sources we've discussed. The Torah says that you, the better off person, should get rid of your sa'or, your sourdough starter dough, and should eat flatbread matzot similarly to how the poor people eat barley in the season of the new spring barley. The Torah further says that your whole estate, including the poor slaves, and even the poor non-citizen ger, must also eat from the korban pasach, the paschal lamb. And the Torah further says to remember you were slaves in Egypt. With that background, how hard would it be for you in ancient times to realize that you should not dismiss the poor to eat low-quality legume kidney oat flatbread, or to drink water instead of wine while you feast? If people in medieval Europe are saying that legumes and kidney oats are not appropriate for celebrating holiday consumption, celebratory holiday consumption, how hard is it to understand people when they say food made from chintzi flour which can ferment into this low-quality bread is forbidden, even though you're eating it as flatbread. How hard is it to realize that although all Jews know in theory that chametz is forbidden, it is inappropriate to make the poor person eat low-quality legume porridge, <laughs> or to put it in different words, why are you putting them in the situation where they're tempted to add in a little bit of chametz? 
Is it really unclear to forbid mustard because it is, it is midagen? It uses flowery coating, a cheap spice, rather than coating the food with a proper spice? All of these are fine and dandy ways of reading, and it makes more sense than the way I was taught to read them in high school. But I was always taught that Chazal were using standard classic official language, not colloquial verbiage. That's a great question. But since we are starting a series about how to read differently, we're going to have to address your question and the listeners' other questions in our future episodes. Well, yeah, you're, you're opening a lot of new doors for us here, Revelisha. Thank you so much. Chag Sameach to you and all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Common Sense Halakha. Source sheets are available online, linked in the description of this podcast. We welcome your feedback and requests for other topics at commonsensehalacha at gmail.com. That's commonsense, H-A-L-A-K-H-A, at gmail.com. Please rate us and leave a comment and share with whomever you think would benefit. Thanks again, and Chag Pesach Sameach Thank you.